Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Joel Morris. I'm Jason Hazley. And as usual, we are joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest this week is Catherine Jakeways, who is a writer and performer who has done a lot of radio and a lot of TV, and is probably best known for the Sony-nominated North by Northamptonshire, which stars literally everyone from the entire history of sitcom. Yes, everyone that I've ever liked. That's like yeah. working with your heroes. That's exactly what it was, yeah. Did you just ask for, can I have these people because I like them? Well, actually, it was the opposite of that. Originally, I assumed I could play every part. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly did. Because it had started as a, as a one-woman show that I did at the Soho Theatre, where oh. I literally did play all the parts, including the men. And so when Radio 4 um, asked me to do a script for it, I handed in the script completely assuming I would play every part. And I had to have a very awkward conversation with Paul producer who had to say, actually, it doesn't really work like that on the radio. You can't really be all of the parts. I mean, you could maybe be in it. And I mean, actually, there was a bit of a conversation about whether I could be in it at all. But uh, yeah, so I ended wow. up, I think I was two characters in the first series and then we gradually just shortened my bit and shortened my bit. But the way they got around it was by saying to me, well, okay, if you don't play the main part, who, who in an ideal world would you get to play it? And I was like, well, I mean, Penelope Wilson. And uh, they went, OK, we'll ask her. And she said, yes. Yeah. So then it was like, OK, fair enough. She probably would be better at it than me. The yeah. only people you were prepared yeah, to I'm let... I'm only going to relinquish control of this part to Penelope Wilson. So good luck getting her. 
and call me back when she said yes. Oh, she has. Okay, fine. Ask yeah. impossible and then get trapped by the response. Yeah. Oh, we we did a thing recently for radio where uh, quite a few of the roles hadn't been assigned until the very last minute. It was like eleven days before the recording or something. And the producer got in some great actors, and we ended up looking at these actors and going, "This is a really good actor, and they've got five lines." I wish we'd known this person yeah. was going to be cast, you know, six months ago because we'd have written. I know. You know ten well, pages. that's why you have to hope for a second series, isn't it? Because yeah. by then, when you've got yeah. the people's voices in your heads, yes. it's about five million times better. We're a big fan easier. of second series. Oh yeah, we do. We've, we've written on the second series of lots of things, which is just really easy. It's like fan fiction. You just go into the second. Se- yeah, it is a <laughs> yeah. little bit, isn't it? Yeah, you these know are the bits is. that worked, yeah. and let's not do the bits that didn't work. People don't realise that very often when you're doing the first series, you don't know who's going to be in it, what no. the tone's going to be like, and you are blundering around in the dark for weeks and weeks and weeks, and you yeah. record six or eight or four of them yeah. without knowing how it's going to work. And only in the second series, if you get a chance to do a second series, do you know the paint box you're working with. It's a piece of cake. It's like series and that's why it's annoying with the first episode or the pilot often because you get paid or you, as you often don't get paid you're writing it on spec but because it's so much work because you're having to completely create the world aren't you in the pilot yeah every pass over the world is, you, you can really see it in something like the simpsons every pass over the world makes it richer but what's amazing when you look back at that first series is it, of anything is is how much richness is there even in the the really skeletal version of something everything's been thought about yeah. in the show yeah. every character's voice every yeah. well every one of those things is a decision and it, certainly as a writer and I know directors are like this every one of those things is a question that someone will ask you yeah. an actor will come up and say who am I and you I haven't thought oh, about God. this I'm not sure yet oh no you yeah. were just the postman yeah but they need to know but I'm they like, have to know it yeah well actually I think that's something you get better at because North by Northampton was the first thing that I'd done and actually if I listen back not that I ever would now because it would be too horrifying to the fir- very first episode of that because it had started as this one woman show which was monologues it was basically just trying to shoehorn bits of monologue that I knew had worked on stage into bits of dialogue <laughs> so actually it's unlistenable I find that first <laughs> episode because it's just like oh god that really should have had a red pen through it and whereas you know, the more you do it and the sort of slightly better at it you get then you realise that, that the first episode is they always say don't they that a good way of starting is to write episode four or something yeah. of yeah. a sitcom and yeah. not write the first episode because you have to do so much. Someone comes into a room and says who they are yeah, you're or who the relationships scenery, are. That yeah. sort of, hi, sis. <laughs> oh, yeah. God. Yeah, exactly. Which, um, oh, poisonous so, dialogue. Yeah. Actually, people always say that you should write episode four, but I've never done that. Have you? Have you ever started writing in the middle of a series? I think very often we write episode one and then hide it. Yeah, and yeah, then, yeah. And yeah. submit episode, or at least the, the outline for episode one, and then go, we won't write that one until later. You see, that's what professionals do, and I know that's what I should do, but I never do, because I always get bogged down in episode one. Most people won't see episode one. No. Most people will be told by a friend there's a great new show on. Yes, if you're, you're lucky right. you'll get them, they'll tune in on episode three or four. It's got to be like a, like writing through rock. The sit has got to be all the way through every episode. So if you're sort of giving yourself the luxury of episode one and saying oh this only works if you see uh, Fletcher go to prison. Yes. Then you've probably not written a good enough sitcom and it should be clear what that he's a sort of a decent-ish guy and he's got a good yeah. father-son relationship. Absolutely and they set that up with the voiceover at the beginning don't they? Before yeah. That helps. I think yeah. all sitcoms should open with the A team voiceover. You <laughs> should be allowed in 1972. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's great though. Isn't yeah. It? it does so much heavy lifting for you. It just but means people that do by, that anymore. It means by the time the bloody snare drum's finished and the actual tune comes in, this is before yeah. the program starts, before the SIG tune kicks in, you know, you where know you what's are. going yeah, on. You well, know. actually, you got Sheila Hancock <laughs> to be your voice of your your. your we did. Well, that was another way of sort of slightly cheating because it was my first thing. And I only really realised when I started to do other things that didn't have a narrator that actually having a narrator is pretty much cheating. It's amazingly because, useful. Yeah, it's so 
so useful and it does all your exposition and all your authorial voice yeah. stuff for you the number of modern sitcoms that managed to work at enormous speed because they either had a narrator like Ron mm. Howard in Arrested Development yeah. or they had internal monologue yeah. like Peep Show yes or, or talk to camera or talk to camera like yeah. Miranda yeah, or yeah. Fleabag yeah. the number of sitcoms that don't have that start to feel really slow because wow. yeah. you suddenly notice that they go at what feels like British sitcom speed yeah, yeah. all the subtext you have to work out yourself whereas Ron Howard saying he loved her yeah well we're quickly we're in and then we just get on with it but I found that quite hard after I'd done three series on the radio I did try quite hard actually for a while ages ago to get North Bond Hampshire on the telly and it was well we were pitching it for comedy for a bit and then we tried pitching it for drama but people couldn't on the telly get their heads around the idea that there was a narrator and that you didn't really know who she was what and it was frustrating because uh, Desperate Housewives was the best example of where there was a narrator on something that had worked on telly but you knew who she was and the immediate setup was that she would had died and these were her friends I think people are, people struggle with sitcoms sometimes in that it changes its voice occasionally and you get a new voice like The Office or something that, is, that yeah. finds a different way of doing it but it's a very traditional form and people don't like things certainly in Britain there's a feeling that the ideal form is Dad's Army yes. and everything is aspiring to this form and it feels yeah. no often, women in it ideally yeah, <laughs> yeah. A, a large yeah. group of, of men yeah. With, yeah. with women off screen yeah. referred yeah. to thank god for that but, but not seen yeah. knitting um, yeah. yeah because it gets lots of viewers <laughs> and it's still yeah. it's still very successful and yeah the shadow of the classic sitcom means that when you break it and say well there's a narrator or yeah. she turns to camera yes. or something, everyone goes what yeah and the work it took for say miranda to get the turn to camera into miranda without Absolutely. people throwing it out but then as you say after that then it feels weird when you don't have it yeah and after the after ricky Gervais had, had fought to get the office on screen after that it felt weird when people weren't doing mockumentaries for a few yeah. years, didn't mm. they? Lots of it's not even new. When I mean, you look at Miranda, and the first thing Miranda reminded me of was Frankie Howard. It's up Pompeii. Yeah. She's constantly turned to the camera yeah. and basically going, ooh. Yeah. And it's very, very trad. And that was yeah. the most successful sitcom of its age yeah. but yet people forget it which is brings us neatly to what you brought to us which i think probably three people in the room might regard as the i'm, I'm just going to have some ventolin <laughs> jason has been too excited about jason's this had to nip to the toilet about three times before we started oh, we God. probably agree this is a high watermark of british sitcom what have you brought we quite like it don't we, we? we're pretty keen we what like have you it. brought for us to play with today i have suggested that we discuss in just a you know we could just Passing, pass yeah. comment on it. Uh, Ever decreasing circle. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. He's gone. He's, He's fondling gone. himself. <laughs> it's too much. I mean, I was aware screen? when I suggested it. Where are my statins? It, it, it feels a little bit like saying to Stephen Hawking, "I'm going to come and I've, I've been thinking a bit about black holes, and I'm going to come <laughs> and tell you a few things that I know about black holes." Because I'm aware that anything that I vaguely think about Evertracing Circles in the couple of times I've watched it is nothing compared to your huge love and knowledge. I, yeah, I have been under the bonnet of this thing quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, I know you have. So but I'm going to try I'm, and shut up. It is. Yeah, it's my favourite ever sitcom. People are surprised when you, when you mention it because there's a, a hierarchy of sitcoms which yeah. we're all supposed to say, well, it's Forty Towers, yeah. and it's Seinfeld, and yeah. this will be somewhere in the top 50 fondly remembered 1980s domestic suburban sitcom. Yeah. And I think all three of us would happily 
put it at the top or in our top three without yes, any worry Yes, it would easily be in my top three. Yeah. And actually, I can't really think what I'd put above it. Ever-decreasing circles is the one that I always... It's the gold standard, I think, isn't it, of how to do it. I mean, I think it bears re-watching and re-watching. For context, it, it's the sitcom... That... By the way, I'm trying not to say 4,000 words. I feel like you're basically about to burst, and when you do start speaking, you won't stop for an hour yeah. and a half, but that's fine. Hold him back. He's, yeah. on, he's on a very short chain. Yeah. Um, Should we say some stuff to just annoy him that uh, he knows he's wrong? <laughs> It's uh, what it was. Yeah. Written by Clement and Lafrenet. Yeah. David uh, Jason was brilliant in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the one with the slap bass. Yeah. For the links. Stuff. Yeah. And he hits the car with a bit he of stick. He does. And this. Uh, this yeah. The, yeah, it's really it's the three priests who yeah. live uh, in the travel tavern. That one. Uh, but it's what's interesting about Everything Circles. I think lots of comedy writers and performers I know really, really write yeah. it. It is the lesser known of the two yeah. sort of high watermarks of Esmond and Larby who wrote it of their career. which They wrote The Good Life with Richard Bryars, who then goes on to play the lead in Every Decreasing Circles. And The Good Life is... And a, probably a cultural landmark. In the yes, Queen which everybody would it. say, absolutely. People who grew up with it, and it's a wonderful yeah. show. And Everton Christian Circles is the one they did afterwards that I think I remember reading in a couple of sort of guides to British television and sitcoms, regarded as the one that came afterwards, the second album that wasn't quite as good. Ooh. That's the wrongest. <laughs> Mark Lewison says that in the Radio Times Guide to Comedy, and Mark Lewison knows his stuff about the Beatles and things, but he says yeah. it's a, a it's sort of slightly good. flawed thing. I've had a word with him about that, by the way. He's, de- he's dead now. But he's... What he says, which I think is what people's first response to Everything Circles is as a setup, is he says that it's an annoying neighbour sitcom and that they've made the mistake of making the annoying next door neighbour the lead character. Whereas I think the genius of Everything Circles is that they've decided that the annoying next door neighbour should be the focus of Let's all their attention. Let's bring him front and centre. Absolutely, because we're all that annoying neighbour, aren't we? And we're all him, and mainly, more importantly, we're, we're all her, we're all Anne. And so I suppose it's being married to the annoying next door neighbour rather than having them next door. So yeah, it's about the two of them. You can't escape him. Yeah, It's exactly. what it would like to be trapped with. Well, the, the, the essence of sitcom, as they often say, is, is putting people in a situation where they're trapped. And the great thing about Editor Christian Circles is Richard Bryars as Martin Bryce, who is a, a fuss budget they'd call him in America someone who is yeah. constantly organising things and running clubs and running off Gestetner reproductions of rotors for various social events <coughs> yeah. and his long-suffering wife Anne played, just by, laughing played by Penelope Wilton yeah. uh, and he is trapped inside Martin Bryce's yeah. head and she is trapped in a house and a marriage with a man who thinks everything needs to be organised and Although I'd argue that she isn't trapped because I think the interesting thing about Anne in it is she could leave any time. You're right. You're absolutely yeah. right. Oh, here we go. He's off. Go on. Oh, <laughs> no, no, yeah. you're right. That's, yeah. that's true. He's, she's not trapped with him and I think that's what the whole point is. I mean, there are moments where you feel like, oh God, she'll never be able to get out, but she could get out and we're told time and again that Anne is bright and independent yep. and has her own mind and she could go any time and yet she doesn't. And she stays with him because she loves him and because, you know, he drives her crazy. But fundamentally, they are in love with each other and they have this marriage where they're able to enjoy each other's company. And I think they have quite good sex, which I think is quite important. What's that, that, that comes up a lot. There's, there's one in this episode. You've chosen the cricket yeah. match episode from series two. Absolutely. And, and she gets a bit romantic and smitchy with him. He says, and not on match day. Yeah. I'm actually thinking that was a very nice thing for Paul to say. Then why did you say, what's he up to? Habit. Be the nicer you, Martin. I know you're in there somewhere. (laughs) Now, he acted very decently and well. He's gone up in my estimation. There. Pity the captain doesn't have a little dressing room of his own, isn't it? (laughs) Please don't get me excited, Anne. It's match day. (laughs) 
as if to go, she will somehow suck his essence with her yeah. sexual potency and he won't be able to play But what cricket. she actually says is, oh, I wish the captain got his own little room. So she's not just saying, what she's actually saying is, I wish we could nip off into the loos now yeah. and do it. And yeah. you think, brilliant, That's they do that sometimes. And There's I believe that, that they do. That's something yeah. they, they, they've ported across directly from The Good Life yeah. and from, I think, uh, from other things they've done, which is the characters on screen have an active sex life yeah. that you're allowed to know about and isn't at risk. No one's going to end up chasing the secretary around the desk. They've taken out... <laughs> One of the big notes of 70s sitcom, which is that all men hate their hate yeah. their wives and want the dolly bird. Exactly. Which is even in Forty Towers, you you forget when you rewatch Forty Towers that the dynamic of, of Basil and Sybil is the same as George and Mildred. Well, they hate the, each other. Yeah. The marriage is sort of has gone to a point where it's just hit comedy marriage now rather than actual. Yeah. Marriage. yeah Basil and Sybil in their separate beds. Yeah, absolutely. That with thing. her, with her. Eric and Ernie have more intimacy yeah. than Basil and Sybil, but yeah. in Esmond and Larby sitcom, God, which what a are, thought, which are very. <laughs> Esmond and Lobby are held up as a, the sort of the, the high watermark of cosy family, BBC One, acceptable sitcom. And the sex lives of their characters are never in any doubt. You no. know that Jerry and Margot do it. Absolutely, they do it all the time. It's certainly Tom and Barbara do. Yeah. And they like each other, don't they? Yes. They yes. get on, they have little private jokes, they make each other laugh. Yes. And even Martin Bryce, who can't make, you know, he wouldn't make a joke deliberately, but they they enjoy each other's company, I think, fundamentally. He drives her mad, but it's important, and it's really important that we think that she likes him because we like her so much. And I think Anne is such a character that you know you'd have a laugh with, and if you went out for a drink with Anne, you'd, you'd have a good time. She's funny, she's bright, she's... Yep. You know, I think she's a brilliant role model, not necessarily in a marriage, but she if you have a mate who you really like and you meet their partner and you think, God, I can't see quite what she sees in him, <laughs> but if you really trust your mate, then you think, well, there must be hidden depths to him. And I think it's yeah. important that we like Anne so much because we trust her. That's why we think Martin's probably not the monster that he comes across as. She reflects well on him. Yes, that's yeah. true. If you try to imagine Martin Bryce and a wife who was you know, just almost off stage. Yeah. You'd think this is the worst human being I've ever yeah, encountered. Yeah, you would, you? Because absolutely. Because you know that, that the context is this is his marriage yeah. and they're very much in love. Yeah, and, and you his, trust and her And his wife enough. can see the good things in him yeah. constantly. You, then you get over the fact that he is yeah. a dreadful human yeah, being. <laughs> She's exactly. a character witness for him. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what she is. and Larby, I'd say one of the big things they do that other sitcom writers should aspire to is they are really good at writing people who like each other. Yeah, that's exactly what the I was going to say. The key to The Good Life yeah. is that they should be rival neighbours yeah. who hate each other. And the genius of The Good Life is they decided what if the family who dug up their lawn, the, the prissy family next door, looked at them digging up their lawn and went, well, if they want to dig up their lawn, they're our friends. Yeah. Which any other sitcom writer would have had them over the fence. Yeah, at, at war. war, exactly. Yeah. And they yeah. don't. And yeah. that's true of so many other sitcoms where you fit... When you actually start to think about it, you think, they don't like each other and they don't, they're not enjoying each other's company. So why should I be enjoying their company week after week? Because they're not enjoying each other's. So obviously you don't want them to be all cosy and laughing and no conflict, because obviously that yeah. doesn't make a sitcom. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when I think about the comedy that I like, it's always people who are occasionally having a bit of a laugh together. And Alfida's own pet was a big favourite of mine they enjoyed each other's company um, Tim and Dawn in the office and it's such an infectious thing if you see people mm. who are enjoying being together 
Friendship is yeah. a really underrated... Yeah, friends. Well, I suppose if you're trying to come up with a, a sit for a sitcom, you'll think, oh, these two people don't like each other. Why don't they like each other? Because that will make better comedy. But actually, yeah. how much more interesting if fundamentally they do like each other, but they just get on each other's nerves? Yeah. And you look at that, and that's Bob and Terry in The Lightly Lads. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's uh, Mark and Jeremy in Peep Show. Yeah. There's a, there's a terrific moment in Morecambe and Wise that Eddie Braben stumbles upon. Um, which is that they like each other. Yeah. Because they started out as a In that thing they did at Christmas, which Neil was really Neil lovely play about yeah, yeah. Uh, Eric and he actually managed to dramatise that. It was a lovely play. Yeah, about it was really well done, comedy, wasn't it? About comedy writing. Yeah. Thing. And the thing that always struck me with Morecambe Wise as a good demonstration of how friendship is funny is the Andre Previn sketch. Mm. They'd performed before, uh, written by Hills and Green, before Eddie Roman took over. And in that... Eric was the pianist and Ernie was the conductor. Oh, really? And they were rivals. And when Eddie Braben rewrote it for the, the yeah. Christmas special, one of the greatest sketch dynamics ever, he put Ernie next to Eric. And the vibe that comes off Ernie is, if you have a go at my friend, yeah. Andre Previn, yeah. I'll lamp you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the more Eric so is bad at playing, yeah. you go, but his friend really likes him. Maybe yeah. he's not bad. Yeah. And so Andre Previn is lost in this world of going, I can't get in here. Yeah. And that dynamic is just funny. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's Anne and Martin as well, isn't it? Yeah. Because she doesn't want people having a go at Martin, <laughs> even though she can. And that's true of... I mean, most of my friends are idiots, but they're my friends. Yeah. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> that's they are, the title of your autobiography they're sorted. They're hateful people. people. Yeah, but they're my awful twats. people. Yeah. Our friend Simon, who's a really big fan of Everett Christian Circles, once said that... He said, I reckon that if you were rude to Anne, Martin would get very cross. Yeah. But Howard and Hilda, yeah. if you're rude to Hilda, Howard would kill you. Yes, he would. And it's that feeling of there are always people who will defend each other. Yeah. There's a network in this. It's it's a depiction of England and suburbia and domesticity and middle class values. But all these people are at war and they would die on the hill of the people they love. Yeah. Even Martin and Paul um, are fond of each other, aren't they? The set which people who haven't seen this, uh, Martin Bryce is a very, very controlling man who, who sort of is the king of his little kingdom in, of little England, runs all the societies, and a neighbour moves in who is the, the worst person who could move in it's next door. It's the antithesis of him. Who's a smooth, capable, university-educated... Yeah. Well, the jumping-off point for them was they wanted to... They, they'd observed someone who they played five-a-side football with, I think. It was a guy who wanted everything planned, and he would come in with diagrams of how the match should go. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they thought, this is a great character, there's a lovely character here, so what if we wrote someone who had to organise the world down to the tiniest little degree in order for things to go right, because yeah. he wants the world to be perfect, and then you go, yeah. who's the worst person to live next door to this, this <laughs> man? And the answer is someone for whom everything effortlessly yeah. goes well the whole someone time. Someone who finds life easy. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Who people just naturally like and he's charming yep. and he succeeds and he does it with a smile on his face because he's relaxed enough to be able to laugh and he can laugh at himself when it comes to it. And I think Peter Egan is actually corpsing a lot of them. When he's laughing in the recordings, I think he's because he's genuinely enjoying himself because <laughs> Richard Bryce is making him laugh so yeah. much and that character can sustain that, yeah. you know. Richard Bryce is so good in it, isn't he? Yeah, he's brilliant, he's isn't possessed. He? He's amazingly good. And I think we, I was so pleased to rewatch it to just remind myself of how good he is in it and it, it's so different from how brilliant he is as Tom Good isn't it it's yeah. to be able to do both of those characters so convincingly mm. when they couldn't be more different could they well Jason has a theory that they are on a continuum 
Oh, do you think? Yeah, because Tom, well, when it gets to like series three and four of The Good Life, Tom is becoming more Martin Bryce than he because he's Tom. He's very much Tom Good in the first episode. He's just a man who's got his 40th yeah. birthday and goes, "What am I doing with my yeah. life?" You know, and then is, that, is he forty in it? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a very midlife first, crisis. It's very Reggie Perrin. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. first the first scene of the first episode is him opening his fortieth birthday oh, card from that. Barbara, which says right. Mozart and Mozart and Mendelssohn were dead by your age. Why aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and he then, but he gradually becomes a man who becomes a sort of technocrat, you know, who's, who's kind of tinkering with things. And in, in the same way that Martin's got all his, yeah. all his tools organised in the That's right interesting. order. That's interesting. And he becomes slightly like obsessive about all yeah. of it, doesn't he? But it's a very he, male thing. And he it? ignores his wife. And you, it, it, yeah. it heads towards that lovely The Last Posh Frock episode yeah. where, where Felicity Kendall ends up pouring gravy over her yeah, head because yeah, yeah. she's not a woman, she's a Barbara. So do you and, think he starts off as Paul, Tom Good, and ends up as Martin? <laughs> it's a journey. It's the sort of Tom Good is how you get from Paul to Martin. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I suppose the interesting thing about Paul in Ever Decreasing Circles is that he sort of arrives as a bit of a mystery. He's very charming, but you're sort of going, what is this guy doing who runs a hairdressing salon and is partnerless and he lives next door and he's got a sports car and yet he's living in slight bay in the heart of suburbia, isn't he? He's not living in a flat in Kensington or something. Something's wrong. This guy is obviously not... One of the lovely things about it is that he's not a sort of medallion man. No. He's a guy who clearly has settled for less yes and has gone to this boring boring clothes well he's he's settled for being a big fish in a small pond yes. hasn't yes. he but if he actually did live in kensington or you know anywhere slightly more cosmopolitan he would probably not fit in at all and he wouldn't be able to yeah. be that come in the pub and everybody virtually gives him a round of applause just for being there. he's the biggest <laughs> yeah. guy and it's yeah. there's something fascinating i think in that uh the first series of Evergreen Circles, which is based on a play, has an arc of questions, as you would do with mm. a drama. Why are Anne and Martin yeah. together? What will happen when the smoothie moves in next door? Will they have an affair? And it's questions and answers. And the audience are left at the end of it with, still with questions. And series two, which is the series that you've chosen the episode from, the, the cricket match episode, is a lot of answers, one at a time, to those questions. Like, where did Paul come from? We get to meet Paul's wife. Yeah. Is Martin mentally ill? There's an episode where a yeah. psychiatrist becomes yes. obsessed with what's wrong with Martin. Martin. And also the big question, which is why are Anne and Martin together? Yes, which is answered. And Penelope Wilton gets a beautiful yeah. speech. Look, if this is an impertinence, tell me to mind my own business, but I've often wondered how you two got together in the first place. Well, you see, when I first met Martin, I was quite frankly in a bit of a mess. I'd met the wrong bloke, was in the wrong job, left both, and I wasn't coping at all. And suddenly, there was Martin who said, why bother to cope? Let me do it. And he did. And he brought back some order into my life and some security. And he was always kind. I mean, he drives me round the bend sometimes. But I do love him. And you completely get that, don't you? And we've all had those periods in our life. And actually, you know, we've all got friends who are in those relationships, basically, if we're not ourselves. Yeah. Where it's about sort of settling, isn't it? Yeah. And about whether you settle for the sort of easy life or whether your head might potentially be turned by the man next door in the sports mm. car. It's not a midlife crisis. There's a lot of 70s midlife crisis uh, sitcoms like Reggie Perrin Reggie and The Perrin, Good Life. Yeah. Uh, or Butterflies. And I was looking up their ages. And interestingly, they're, they're all turning 40 around The Good Life. And in this one, Penelope Wilton and Peter Egan are, are noticeably younger. Yeah. About 10 years younger. But the core cast who've settled, Howard and Hilda, Stanley Labore and Geraldine. Yes, they're Newman, a bit older. They're all 50. This is a sitcom about being Are they 50. actually 50? Yeah. And it's about how and why and what it means to settle. Yeah. Is that a crime? Yeah, is it a crime? Should, and I think actually she decides, doesn't she, Anne? And as she's our sort of point of entry character, she decides it is enough. Yeah. Because she could go with him or she could go and do anything else. There's that. There's an episode in the second series where weirdly, slightly weirdly, starts with her phoning him from Boulogne and she's just gone to Boulogne yes. for the night. I hope nothing French has happened yeah. to you, Anne. <laughs> 
just stay with the English people as close as you yeah. can. But she's just got on a ferry and gone yeah. to Boulogne for the night and there's never any explanation of it. In any other sitcom, you would then later find out why she actually went to Boulogne and there would have been some sort of nefarious thing or there'd have been she was going to buy him something <laughs> that you could only get there. But it's there's, but the lovely, there's no... I suppose the lovely inbuilt explanation is because that's who she is. Yeah, She'll just go, exactly. you know what, I'm going to take off for the yeah, day. Yeah, and that shows you that she wants a bit more from life than that clothes and from that life and she's sophisticated. She doesn't just go shopping for the day or she's yeah. gone to the supermarket mm. or, you know, gone out and buying, God forbid, a pair of shoes or a handbag or something that you would get these days. She's, you know, she's gone... To France on the ferry, which and, I mean, my she mom buys has never bread. Done that. She comes back with bread. She's yeah, she just, comes back with some bread. She's just been to the shops. Yeah, but the shops are a long way away. And you think, yeah, you're completely right. When I, I said at the beginning that Anne is trapped, stuff like that proves that she is. She's not trapped. trapped. She could leave. She at could any get time. on a ferry and go to Boulogne for the rest of you know for the rest of the year, well, any day. But she chooses not to. They're very good at delicately fiddling with sitcom dynamic. Yeah. And making it very believable. And suddenly, I think if you thought that Anne couldn't leave, you'd start thinking, well, is she yeah, mentally exactly. ill? Is she yeah. fri- has she got... Uh, is she frightened? Is she uh, a nervous person? Yeah, the he's not Joseph Fritzl. She's there yeah. of her own free will. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very different sitcom. That was the one they did after this. Ever-decreasing Fritzls, yeah. yeah that was <laughs> So this is an episode based around a cricket match on yeah. the uh, on the village green, uh, Wisborough Green in Billingshurst, by the way, oh. where Esmond and Larby had their office. Oh, um, really? Yeah. And Paul, who is clearly angling to become part of the cricket side, but can't because he thought they played on a Sunday and they played on a yeah, Saturday. Yeah, and he's got the VAT man coming. Then Curly Baldwin breaks his finger while they're practising in the nets and someone has to step in. And, of course, it's Paul, which this guaranteed to drive Martin crazy. <laughs> yeah. And Paul comes in and does a spectacular innings in slow-mo because yeah. Peter Egan had never played cricket in his life. Is that right? And couldn't play. Yeah, so he's, in, he's in this episode as a cricketing hero and he had never played cricket and was oh, lousy wow. at it, so they so had they to slow it down him. and put in the Ride of the Valkyries to make it look dramatic because he was so terrible at it. That's By brilliant. contrast with the snooker episode yeah. where he has to deliberately throw yeah. his match yeah. when, in fact, Peter Egan is an extremely accomplished snooker oh, player. Funny. So I wonder why they did it that way around. So they've got two sporting uh, episodes in this series yeah. and it's two things where you realise it's always a sport. There's always yeah. who's going to win. As far as Martin's concerned, it's a contest. And they do two sporting episodes where they play them very differently. And the great thing about this is they are rivals on the same team. Yeah. Which is such a good dynamic because the normal thing would be to play, Paul would be his the person who stops him getting through to the end of the tennis championship. Yeah. But, or he'd be bowling to him. He'd be bowling yeah. him out. Yeah. But he's helping him. And Martin yeah. hates being helped yeah. by this man. And it's such a lovely dynamic. He gets to come in and be the hero, which is all that Martin ever wants. <laughs> and has literally never done. Because it's uh, Esmond and Larby, they managed to add an extra twang to that. So so Paul has this magnificent innings, the club record he has for the innings, mm. by, by about 138 <laughs> yeah. runs or something. Yes, which, like, they managed to get in, don't they? Because they say something like the previous record was 11 or something. Yeah, yeah. Or Martin's Martin record. And Howard, yeah, Martin yeah. and Howard. Martin and Howard had a, it yeah. was 17, 17, I think. Or yeah. and now, I know, but and when now... Howard got 11, he proposed to Hilda because he was so That's buoyed right, up yeah. by it because he'd got 11. <laughs> In the ice cream van. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so Paul does this magnificent innings and they win. And the skipper of the other team then accuses yeah. uh, accuses Martin of basically rigging the match. Yeah, when bringing he, a ringer in. I hear he's played for Cambridge University. So not only has he had to witness him yeah. doing exactly what so he loses he and then he loses yeah, and again. And he still gets that. But then, and the kicker at the end is when he's oh, about to go God. back in, which is why I think actually it's the re- episode that I chose. Because it's so beautiful, that last bit, where they have that lovely moment with Martin and Anne outside the bar... And she says, come on, you can turn this evening around. Let's go in and do one, have one of those nights that we always have where you play the piano and we have a sing-song. And he goes, OK. And you could, they could 
could have let him have that, couldn't yeah. they? Yeah. They absolutely could have let him have that. But then they just hear the piano start up and he's, you know, and everybody's singing. And she opens the door and, <laughs> and you don't see, you don't even see it, do you? No, she just looks no. in and we, we all know and she just goes, yes, it is him. Yeah. And the way she says it is so beautiful, isn't it? And then that's the end. It's, they don't let him have it. The stage direction for that. Martin and Anne freeze. Their eyes meet. They hardly need confirmation. But Anne peeps into the bar. Oh, <laughs> they know what's coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, and so do we. We all know it. What's nice is that it's the writers as cruel gods. Yeah. Which is one of the things that was so delightful about One Foot in the Grave. Yes, that David yes. Renwick is, is the uncaring god who yeah. tortures this, this, this <laughs> poor man who we like. And in this, you know that you want things to go well for Martin. Yeah. But you're delighted when they don't because we're all on the side of the... We're the audience. Yeah. And oddly, it's joyous. Watching yeah. it go badly. Well, cause... the reason it's joyous is because at the end of the day, he's lost the cricket match. He's been criticised by the other captain, so he's been, you know, made to feel <laughs> stupid. He can't even have his sing song. But what he has got is he's got her and he's got Anne. Yeah. Yep. So and Paul will never have Anne, whether he actually wants her or not is another question. But you know, he certainly makes out like he does some of the time. But Anne has stayed with Martin. Yes. Despite and she's... this. Yeah, exactly. So that's the one thing that he's always going to have over Paul. Uh, there's a nice line Howard and Hilda have that, and, and Howard says, "I've never won anything. The only thing I've ever won is you." Oh. To Hilda. Oh, yeah. that's and it's just it's, it's all about these people who keep it? losing, but all they've got is their friends yeah. and their their partners. The other thing that that Martin always gets this has just occurred to me is he's always right. He's a man who it's very important for him to be right. And at yeah. the end of the episode, he goes, "See, yeah. I told you <laughs> yeah. it would go wrong." So at the end yeah, of it, not he, only what he said at the beginning, his wife says, it. "Yeah, yeah, you yeah, were yeah. right. The world does. Oh, yeah. everything is against you. Paul yeah. does have the Midas touch. He is magic." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like a lot of ever-decreasing circles, it's got some very, very quotable lines in it. There's Hilda's lovely one of, I'm sorry, Martin, I behaved like a skinhead. <laughs> and there's I also... Punched the, the air at that last yeah. time. Yeah. There's, a, so brilliant, there's an exchange it? I've forgotten at the front where, where Martin is contemplating if they do well, and he was saying... <gasps> We could play Branston Pickles, <laughs> Jay's Fluid, the Coal Board. <laughs> I'm sorry, Martin. I behaved like a skinhead. <laughs> the one about the trousers, that was my favourite one, when he says uh, the trousers are... Oh, God, I can't remember exactly. Do you realise there are people's private trousers yeah. hanging on hooks in those dressing rooms? <laughs> it's got my favourite line anywhere in Ever Decreasing Circles in it, which is, I think, tells you so much about the noise going on in Martin's head, which is when he strolls into the room and says, What, what a wonderful, wonderful man. man that skipper is. He noticed the new hooks in the dressing room straight away. You'd never know he'd been run over, would you? <laughs> He's always so polite. <laughs> And when you when you unpack that, you go well. First of all, yeah. that's three jokes for the price of yeah. one. Secondly, listen to the noise in Martin's head. Yeah. He has started on hooks in a dressing room, which is the kind of thing that he'd notice. We've got new hooks. Well, nice hooks these yeah. are. You know, she's it will be she as well. Every object yeah. is a she. Yes. Oh, she's a she's a good looking hook. You know, yeah, it'll be yeah, that yeah. sort of thing. <laughs> and it tells you something I think which is key about this sitcom is that I think the situation, though it's set in the close. It's not the close, Anne, it's the close. Um, <laughs> though it's set in the close, it's not. I think the sit in this is Martin's head because everything comes yeah. from the inside of Martin's head yeah. where there is so much noise going yeah, on. Yeah, you're 
right. And he, if the man hadn't noticed the hooks, he would have thought so much less of him. There'd be yes. so many people yes. in the past. Would have judged him. There'd be so he? many people in the past who haven't noticed those hooks <laughs> or who haven't noticed those things. And that, and I think that you're right. Actually, I hadn't really thought about that, but that is something that I love about it. I suppose in Forty Towers you get what's going on in Basil's head. Do you? I suppose well, Basil's it's a, coping with chaos, though, isn't he? Which is yeah. external. Whereas what Martin's yes, doing is all Martin, internal. Martin has yeah. decided the way the world is going to be, and when yeah. it doesn't work out that way, he has to try everything in order to try and get yeah. it back to the way he imagined it would yes, be. Yes, exactly. We all fear that we are him, and we and we probably are him. We'd love to be Anne, and we'd love to be Paul in some ways, but we're all Martin. Yeah. And my dad was, all, you know, is very much Martin, but every, he's sort of everybody's dad, isn't he? I mean, he's, Plenty you know, of dads I know didn't enjoy watching Twisted Circles. Yeah, because <laughs> it was just, what's so funny about him? Yeah. Or also just going, I don't want to watch this. This, yeah. is, this is exposing too much. I think... Well, in the way people didn't like watching David Brent, or didn't yeah. like because they felt like, oh, I have a life like that anyway, or I work in an office like well, that. Well, Penelope Wilton says that she used to get two sorts of letter from people. One one were letters saying, why are you married to that man? Really? And the other was, I'm married to that man. (laughs) (laughs) This is perceived very much as a 1980s domestic, suburban, safe, cosy, BBC One, Mm. middle-of-the-road sitcom, but it's got dynamite in it. People avoid watching it because the the reflection in the mirror... It's uncomfortable. ...is not nice. It's, It's really quite... In its own little world, it is a savage and brutal exposure of the essence of England yeah. and of a certain sort of English person, as as you'll see in any novel. It's 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 a really there's something state of the nation about this. Yeah. That, that that line this isn't the close it's the close. Yeah. And there's that line of doing things the quiet English way that he yeah. sees this as him. In his castle, yeah. protecting the essence. On his island. Um, there's a big crane shot coming across the green and Howard and Martin are wandering across the green and they just end up going into this good old England, eh, Howard? Yes, mm. good old England. And then Paul turns up in his car yeah. and toots on the horn. The MG. And, and, the, and the stage direction says in the script, suddenly England becomes a less wonderful place for oh, does Martin. It? <laughs> does it? Isn't that great? So Paul even threatens the Englishness yeah. of England, you know. <laughs> It's a really good sitcom about a certain type of brain. Yeah. That I think all of us have to a certain degree. Well, it's that level of pomposity that he has that we all have. But what you hope you have and what you can <laughs> undercut yourself with is is realising that sometimes you've said something that's a bit of a ridiculous thing to say. And if you've got people around you like yeah. Anne or Paul often who can point that out to you, you hope that you would then laugh about it and go, oh, yeah, that was a bit of a ridiculous thing to say. Whereas Martin will never have that, will he? He's got... The classic sitcom uh, gift, if you're a sitcom writer, is that despite all the pressure on him, he will not change. The joy of sitcom is that every week you tune in and things are hopefully the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you liked it last week, you'll like it this week. And the the joy for the audience is, that's typical Martin. I knew Martin would say that. I am delighted. And all these people are predictable and and they've got their patterns. It's typical Paul, typical Anne. And part of the delight is, is that you're waiting to see whether the arrival of... Paul will tempt and have an affair. You're, it looks like change is about to happen. And then part of the fun is that he seems to be unchangeable. Absolutely. Which you sort of almost admire him for, don't you? He's going to stick <laughs> to his guns, come what may. And it makes you sympathise with Anne more that she's got that on her hands. But also, as I said before, you think, well, she's married him because she loves him and she's sticking with him. Yeah, Paul's got this attitude that something needs to be fixed, maybe. Yeah. He's undermining because you go, oh, maybe he'll change or maybe Anne will change. He's always trying it on. He's always saying, when are you going to run away with me? He's quite open about it. It's not a yeah. subtext. But do you thing. think he does that to everybody? 
Oh, I mean, he doesn't do it to Hilda, <laughs> but does he? Because because he knows that Howard would kill him. There's a moment at which Hilda goes weak at the knees, but when he's got oh, when yes, she's got right. something in her ear and he blows into oh, her ear, right. and she, just Geraldine Geraldine <laughs> yeah. Newman's face is a picture. Yeah, it's that's wonderful. right. I'd forgotten about that. You're never quite clear about whether Paul really would run away with Anne at the drop of a hat whether he's just doing that because that's what he does with all the customers in his salon or that's how he behaves Actually, with every woman that's true That it's exactly salon technique isn't yeah it, it is it's exactly what you yeah. do because he's dealing with a lot of people who come in for blue yeah, rinses and, and things so he's just got to nice make them to them feel them very, yeah, exactly. very at home you know but there is one scene in the first series where you think this is going to be the scene where there's an affair yeah that they might go to bed together or something, and it gets quite hot between Penelope Wilton and Peter Egan they yeah. play it really well and it doesn't happen well well look the thing about this is that I've written about it but there's a missing script from the first series there were five episodes in the first series and when you when you go through the scripts in the archive they are labeled numbers one two three five and six so something was going to happen and the beginning of those two episodes which have got the gap between them have had the end of the first one and the beginning of the second one retyped so something happened I think they probably at least shared a kiss at some point and then the cast, because Peter Egan vaguely recalls this, he says, we sort of thought, hang on, that destroys it, doesn't it? So you can't have Anne and Paul get off with each other because no. it just destroys it. Yes, you have that to yank that out. It's it. always got to be a question mark in the air. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they pulled that script out, which is why there's five what in the first series. What did about that when you seven. asked her? She didn't recall, unfortunately, right. but it had happened. She'd have recalled if he'd kissed her. Yeah, he would, she would. <laughs> he'd blown in her ear. <laughs> what if he blew in her ear? I mean, yeah, good grief. Um, she, yeah, she didn't She's recall. Human. But, it, but I think it would have happened between the scripts being delivered and the rehearsals being started. So I think it probably was something which got talked about, but it wasn't. It didn't. They ever. So there's nobody left that you can ask script. that. That's so frustrating, no, isn't no. it? No, the person who commissioned it is no longer with us. The producer is, and he didn't recall it when I asked him, Sid Lotterby. He even rang his then assistant who typed the scripts up and said, "Can you remember anything oh, really? about it?" And she said, "No, I can't." So, Great. but there's an amazing gravity. The story is pulling in a direction there that when that happens, when you watch that episode where they, they nearly kiss yeah, and then you can hear the typewriter or the redacted pen <laughs> going through it that you feel it was inevitable and that says to me something interesting about the difference between sitcom and drama or theatre writing or novel writing if you were writing that as a novel there would have been a kiss and incident and the, the thing that's very that's unique about sitcom is that things must not change yeah they yeah. have to move on. Even if you're telling a story, and, and series one of Every Quitting Circles does tell a story of the arrival of a new man yeah. and the yeah. temptation. Yeah, a progression. And it was adapted it. from yeah. a play, as you well, said. Well, the play's very different, but um, but it, it basically, basically the first series is just one story arc played out over five episodes, which yeah. is a very brave thing to do in a sitcom, because that's that's not a series, that's a serial, isn't it, technically? Yes. It's telling yeah. you a story from beginning to end which across is yeah. five episodes. fashionably, and, and certainly in terms of how American sitcoms do yeah, things now. Yeah, it's how they all do it. It's always serial. Things are always and when, moving. Was yet, that the first time that that had really been done in a sitcom here? That's a good question. Reggie, yeah. Perrin, Reggie Perrin's the one I always pull up. Yes, that's, that's that was true. based on a novel. Yeah. And when you talk about great yeah. sitcoms, whenever people sort of say, is Fleabag a sitcom? I go, well, if Reggie Perrin's a sitcom, yes. Fleabag's a sitcom. And Reggie Perrin, he goes and he has grot and all that, doesn't he? So it does yeah. moves progress. on, sets yeah, yeah, different yeah. things. But his Billy Lyre was a sitcom it. as well. That was yeah. based on the novel, wasn't it? There was a sitcom of Billy Lyre. It was a sitcom of that. Yeah. But really? things things moving and things heading towards an ending is is the natural way of well human storytelling and strangely and uniquely the 
the model of television, which is by the yard, this must never stop, yes. we require 13 series yeah, of this. Yeah, we're going to do this forever. Requires a, a reset, a constant reset at the end of each episode that is very hard to maintain unless you're very skilled. This is a good demonstration of Esmond and Larby creating something as a sitcom, which they are very naturally good at, yeah. that cannot change, that resists narrative pull forwards. And yet at the end of the last series of Ever-Decreasing Circles, there is an ending, isn't there? Yeah, there is, and... Um... It's tough this because to end a sitcom, really, what you want to do is to leave everything exactly where it was. But um, Esmond and Larby tended to try and go out with a flourish, which was almost never successful, actually, I have to say. Despite oh, really? my absolute admiration for them as writers, I think they weren't in their their best when they were trying to confect endings because they don't they just don't look logical. Right. The ending to The Good Life is bizarre. Um, oh, Tom and Barbara's insane. house gets vandalised and everything gets smashed up and Jerry and Margot lean on them and say, isn't it time you gave up this ridiculous lifestyle of yours? Right. That's already a non sequitur. Yeah. Because you've been vandalised, shouldn't you give up your lifestyle? And they say, no, actually, because it's um, it may be an old life that we have, but it is a good life. Oh. Yes, it is a good life. And oh. they chink their glasses and that's it. Oh, it's so it? odd. Wow. They were heading towards saying the title of the, of the programme wow. and then it can finish. Whoever typed the script up has written underneath it, boo-hoo. Really? <laughs> because it's the end, of the, the end of the series. The ending they really get right is brushstrokes. Jacko is basically now on a point where he has got two available women. Right. And he has to choose which one. And they're both coming at him from different directions with exactly the same amount of pressure so that it's literally he doesn't know what's in it and he's in the yeah. cafe and he's spoken to them both and then he goes outside and stands in the street pulls a coin out of his pocket tosses the coin brings it down onto the back of his hand looks at it smiles and they freeze on his face and that's the end in other words he's made a decision but it doesn't matter what the decision is wow doesn't matter he's made a decision that's, that's actually it. that's interesting very I, hadn't, satisfying. I hadn't remember that although I was a big brushstrokes fan but there was a show much more recently called me and mrs jones which yeah. orianne and faye wrote yeah. um which i was in actually although in my characteristic four lines in a couple of episodes they wouldn't let you play um, all the characters yeah. again no, it's, it's weird it was another error. one of those where i was neither me nor mrs jones um <laughs> But, end. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they only did one series of that, but that ends in exactly the same way. And it's Sarah Alexander is the lead. They didn't know, of course, whether they were going to get a second series. And so that ends in exactly the same way. And she's at, she's literally in her car at a crossroads. And she sort of is, you see her trying to make a decision about whether she's going to go left or right. And she sort of makes the decision and then it ends. So it's like, how interesting. I wonder that's if that's great. A, yeah. That's a, very, that's a great way of doing it. As end. a writer, it's quite, you feel slightly like it's a bit of a cop out. I did a play on the radio a couple of years ago called Where This Service Will Terminate. And it was just, a, it was supposed to be just a one off, yeah. 45 minute after play and it was a two-hander basically between Rosie Cavaliero and Justin Edwards and it's I was really pleased with it actually and what a cast yeah they were brilliant in it they're two people who don't know each other who get on uh, a train at Paddington and they're going all the way to Penzance which is something like seven hours or something on the yeah. train together and they're sitting next to each other and they have a bit of a Barney to start with and then it's obviously what happens over the course of the seven hours and how they're you know what they tell each other and what turns yeah. out to be true and what doesn't and that was only ever supposed to be a one-off and at the end it, I left it completely open-ended because I hadn't quite decided what was going to happen with it but then it was re they liked it Radio 4 really liked it and they did a they commissioned a second part of it and I'm actually at the moment I should be doing that right now writing the third part <laughs> of it it's a slightly sort of before sunrise before sunset kind of thing exactly yeah that. It's, very good. it's that which I love all that kind of thing but it's I feel a little bit like it, I'm, and it's lovely to hear you say well that's a really nice way to end it as a viewer but actually as a writer you do often think oh I'm this is a bit of a cop-out because I haven't quite decided what's going to happen so I'll just what? say I We're suppose, not sure. at, at, in terms of you're writing something there which is about relationships or uh, loosely sort of ro romance or something, yeah. 
that the worst ending for a romance sometimes is and they lived happily ever yes, after. Yes, of course. Because yeah. anyone mature knows that actually that's the beginning of the yeah. story, not the end of it. Yeah. So sometimes you realise that some of the best rom-coms like Annie Hall or, or When Harry Met Sally don't, Sally, don't yeah. end with them getting together. They end with a continuation of people exploring each, each other yeah. and life because that's far more honest. Yeah. Well, the great thing about that brushstrokes ending is that the audience are basically being asked, who's Jacko going to choose? But that's not the question. The question is, is he going to make a decision? Yeah. Yeah. And the answer is yes. He's, he's made, made a decision. One, and what it end. is is irrelevant. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, which brings us back to the end of Ever Decreasing Circles, the very end of the last episode. Uh, it starts very promisingly. Martin's employer, Mole Valley Valves, has merged with Lee Valley Valves right. to form Mole Lee Valley Valves. <laughs> And he's got to be relocated to Oswest Street. Right. And so he's got to move away. So you think, OK, great, that's the end of it. This is ending. I know it's ending because this is a 65-minute special, you know, yeah. and so he is moving away. Then they throw in, and Anne is pregnant, which is a sort wow. of an extra... We didn't need the extra thing yeah. because he all he had to do was to come to terms with the fact that he was moving away, say goodbye to the close end of series. Yeah. But they chuck in Anne is pregnant because that means he then gets to, he then gets to go through the thought process of, I'm terrified of becoming a father. I don't want to become a father. And then finally, I'm delighted I'm becoming a father, which admittedly is, is a nice character. Yeah. That's how they do it. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it's quite uncharacteristic, because like a lot of sitcom, especially around in the 70s and 80s, this one has remained resolutely childless. Yeah. Um, because as... Who was it who said to us about having children in your sitcom? Daniel Ward. Daniel Ward, yeah. If you have children in your sitcom, that means that half your actors aren't very good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they have to go home at five. <laughs> yeah. So you can't actually it's rehearse. It's so true, isn't it, often? Yeah, yeah you realise how many, how many sitcoms in the 70s didn't have kids or had grown-up kids, or in the case of Esmond and Larby, when they cast kids in, in Police Sir, made them 38 years old. Old. Yeah, six formers were halfway to their bus passes, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like in Greece. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, did it feel odd at the time? When you watch that now, it feels very odd that they don't have kids and there's never any mention of the fact that anyone doesn't have kids. But I'm interested in whether in the 80s it felt like, oh, why haven't they got kids? Or if just nobody in sitcoms had... I mean, Butterflies, they had teenage kids. I don't think I asked. No. I mean, now I look at it and go, it's a little bit like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, where the close is someplace where the... Where are the children? Yeah, where it's are the children? That sort of strange question. It's like a Twilight Zone episode. Because there but are a lot... But it just of... does complicate things doesn't it? I mean the, oh, the, totally. the easy answer is they didn't want to write a sitcom about children they wanted to write a sitcom about these yeah. grown-ups yeah oddly the final beat where you suddenly say well you've got this surface finishing the story where Martin will leave yeah. the close so you go okay he's about to go out of the airlock and see if he can survive in yeah, deep yeah, space yeah. so you go well that's quite a good story the second thing is he's got to grow up and you suddenly realize that a lot of his the trappings of settling down and growing up yeah. were what I remember a psychiatrist once describing as delusions of childhood omnipotence he's had a train set which he's had total control of yeah and the next thing that's going to happen as anyone who has kids knows is you're going to lose control yes yeah, so it would be fascinating yeah. to see martin yeah. as a father wouldn't I it worry because we him. all feel like yeah how on earth would that have panned but out he's ceding control as a way of saying it's time for him to grow up and you realize that the the, the sort of slightly giggly howard and hilda they're like giggly kids that go, yeah. a lot of these people are quite infantile yeah and that's obviously funny yeah everyone knows that in comedy adults behaving like children is funny. It is funny, yeah. But you realise these people who've got all the trappings of adulthood, all the rotary clubs and the yeah. rotors and the gastetta and machine and the yeah. cardigans and things, they've all been spoilt children building a little world for themselves and actually it's odd to have that thrown in at the very end and say actually this was about arrested development. Yeah. The truth is I'd forgotten that she ends up being pregnant because it, it's such a presumably a, th a thing that's sort of just thrown in in that last episode and there's no yeah. seeding of that is there? No, they never talk about should we have kids. a family 
differently or no, that's no. something that one of them wants and the other one doesn't, which you would do now, wouldn't you? Yes. If you were about thing, to set up it? to that, you would be seeding it for the whole of the last series at least. It slightly smacks to me of things that I've done in the past where you've sat there and thought, as a writer, how are we going to end this? We could either have them leave the clothes or she could get pregnant. Oh, bollocks, let's just put both in. Yeah. Whereas actually either of those on their own would have been <laughs> yeah. much more satisfactory than yep. just... Because it complicates it, doesn't it? And it's, it sort of well, muddies you, you, the water. You can, see, you can sort of see the mechanism at work. Yeah. You can see them trying yeah. to draw it to a close by going, there's endings coming. Yeah. You know. um, yeah. And it's also, the, it's a lot of, it's quite a lot of heavy lifting then. You've got a lot of yeah. baggage to move towards the last scene. Yeah. I mean, the, actually, the last scene is beautiful because the last scene, of course, is Martin leaving the empty hallway of his empty house in the close. Yes, and the last thing he does is pick up the telephone and the phone. <laughs> turn it round. Yeah, he'll never change, in other words. Yeah. What you said just then is a really fascinating thing about writing, which I think doesn't occur to enough people, which is writing is just choices. And that yeah. most of the time, when you watch something that you think, this is terrific, I'm really enjoying this, when you analyse what's happened is the writers have made a load of choices and they've thrown a lot of stuff out. They thought of three things and chose one thing. Yeah. I remember talking to Sam and Jesse about this and they've been working in Hollywood on as, as part of a script team writing something or other, some big high-budget comedy movie. Mm-hmm. And I said, How? I said, we're out there for two weeks and everyone else was out there, Robert Popper was out there, everyone was out there working on this film. I said, does it show? And Jesse laughed and said, it looks like it's been written on the back of a of a of a bus ticket, really? the final plot. But we had to think of everything first. Yeah, and before then we could sit, get back to that bit. Throw everything out and go, we think these are the six best things that could happen. Yeah. But if when you go and see a bad movie very often, what you're seeing is drafts one, two, three, four, all playing simultaneously, like playing three songs at once. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the really great stories very often are they've just decided it was just a story about a man who wouldn't grow up. The simplicity of those stories isn't that they were easy to think up, is it was really hard to be disciplined enough to throw out the 400 other stories Absolutely. that might have happened. Well, one of the best things that anybody's ever said to me about writing, and I find it so useful so often, is Mark Gatiss said to me, which sounds like a name drop, but it was Mark Gatiss, so I can't pretend it wasn't, um, <laughs> said to me, he said that if you're having trouble with a scene or a character or a plot or anything in writing, the thing to do is to go back to the very first thing you thought about that character or about that scene and get rid of it. 18 months ago, when you came up with the idea for this sitcom, you, you had a one-line thing about what this sitcom was about. You expect him to say, go back and remind yourself what it was you liked about that idea. But actually, it's so much more helpful and so yeah. much braver to say, go back to that thing you thought about it 18 months ago before you'd done any of this work to get to this stage and get rid of it. And it's so freeing. And yes. I've done that so many times where you think, God, yeah, I thought this character, that the defining characteristic of this of this person was that she was, uh, she was stubborn or whatever. Work and work and work at it. And then you think, actually, mate, what? What if she wasn't stubborn? What if she was something else yeah. entirely? And it opens up a whole new world for you. And I think that's so useful as a bit of advice. That sounds like a great bit of advice. Well, I think the the canny bit is going to be knowing when to deploy that technique. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, not you're too right. Early, yeah, not, too late. not not within 24 hours of thinking of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've just recorded my filmed my first sort of telly thing just a pilot so far but the notes that you get and actually a lot of them were very helpful but the notes that you get from 20 different people on every line and a lot of that was why is this family like this why do we need to know as an audience what what the relationship is between these two people and do we need to know that immediately and it's tricky because as a relatively inexperienced writer and certainly in terms of telly terms I'm completely inexperienced I don't know whether how much 
I can stand my ground on that and yeah, say, actually, no, can we just not find that out until and possibly also, episode if you're four? In, or, if you're interested in this, commissioner or person reading it, so will the audience Yeah. Be. And if I, if you just have confidence that I will answer it, that no one's going to just turn the television off and go, I didn't know who those people no. were. They might want to find out And yet out I really liked them and they made me laugh, but because I didn't know how they first met yeah. and what their first pet was called, I'm not going to watch next week. And also yeah. you, you find that as well, where you're talking about throwing out the first things, getting rid of stuff, that sometimes setting all that stuff up means the story doesn't start. Yeah. And we, we, when we were working on Paddington 2, the biggest fight on the for the script team on Paddington 2, the, the Brains Trust, they helped out with that, was there was so much stuff being set up there were new characters to bring in yeah, and yeah. the family to re-establish and things that the film wouldn't get started until 10 minutes in right when a lot of the kids had once sort you've of done all the board exposition yeah so we were setting up so many new things and and the, there was a battle that went on for weeks with some really really good comic minds on it trying to get only the information that the audience needs to know in and no more backstory that struggle to explain but do it quickly enough yeah. that you don't switch off. That's an absolute art, isn't it? And, and doubly so when it's a kids' film, because you're yeah. right, because they're not going to the kids won't sit there for pies ten minutes. Quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, everybody you. refers to the first episode of Friends, don't they, as the quickest you can possibly yeah. set up six yes, characters? Yeah, of course. When she comes in with a bride's outfit on. Yeah, yeah. And it's, each line is telling you who they are. Yeah. Uh, but you want to have that stuff in there, but also not too much detail, because then there's no delight in, in revealing it. more about them. And also, if you're parking your story ears for five minutes to hear how you got here, yeah. after a while as an audience member, you start going, well, shouldn't you have started the story there? And I could have watched her get married. Yes. Yeah. So you, you need to do it. And that's the, the craft, I think, of, of, of establishing stuff, but also not giving everything away. Because yeah. people will keep watching to find out why Sam... Malone is running a bar. Yeah. Why is this man not drinking behind yeah. the bar? That story might come out in episode three. A lot of that is confidence, though, isn't it? Don't you think? Totally. Mm. And I find, and actually, it's interesting. Every time you're talking about stuff, because obviously you write together and you've written in big groups of stuff. Everything that I've written virtually has just been me. So it's a so it's a different feeling because you don't have somebody backing you up, going, "No, you're right on that." So stick yeah. to your guns. Also, naturally, being not you know always very confident in my own yeah. sort of convictions and quite easily swayed. If I I've got eight people saying to me, actually, I think maybe you need to put a line in here. It's knowing when to say, okay, yes, thanks very much for all your experience and thanks for telling me, or whether to go, actually, yeah. bollocks, I think this, and I'm the, my name's on this as the writer, so I'm, I'm going to stick to my guns on this. And it's, well, I'm rubbish at it. I'm trying it's to get hard. better at it. Eight uh, people is too many sets of notes, by yeah. the way. Yeah. That's too complicated. Maybe eight, I might you know, be an example. You know, I might have over-exaggerated I, that, but there's a lot. There's a lot of over-noting going on, I, no I note. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, if you have a good producer, which actually I have had this recent away, thing yeah. they just filter out yes, the stuff they that you should don't need silo to it down to yeah. the notes that are really important and that's something else that I've learned is when I was less experienced I wanted to know every single note and I was th I would say even if I don't want to take any notice of this I would like to hear what people have said and actually now I think actually if I trust my producer yeah. I would trust that he's only going to tell me the stuff or she is only going to tell me the stuff that is going to be useful to me or that's going to Again it's collaboration you want to be you're, you're forced to collaboration especially when you're doing things like television which is a yeah. big team thing yes. there's a lot at stake and there's a money. lot of people whose job it is to have a to have, have a, a say and, yeah. and also sometimes to just say something to justify why they yeah. took their salary home but yeah. you need to have your collaboration isn't just with the vast gang of people your collaboration is with someone you trust to filter 
the opinions down to say the three things we need to do today are this. But that's why I go mad. Often jealous of. I mean, in many ways, I'm not. In other ways, I'm not. Otherwise, I would have tried to garner it myself. But of double act writers like you, who can sit in a room and you know each other well enough that you can say, actually, that's a crap idea, or no, let's stick with this. And sometimes it's just more notes. Sometimes it's just someone else you have to impress and get it past. It's good practice because you're eventually going to have to justify why you think this is funny yes, to someone. Of course. So doing it in a safe space is kind of a coward's way of, of like it's like having a sparring partner before you actually go and do the proper boxing match. Yes, also pre- occasionally yeah. things. That, you know, I'll read you things. I've written because I want to hear them die because I just need to yeah. get it. Re- I need yeah. the reassurance that I've written a piece of crap. You know? Yeah, but that's the safe space of knowing that you can read your diary to, to yeah. Joel, and he won't laugh in your face and say, you know, "Wow, I, you I must know be I an read my idiot." Diary to Joel. <laughs> I wish he'd stop. But it's the equivalent of that, isn't it? It is the, when you first write something and you read it to somebody, or you hear, some, or you send it to somebody. Even it is like just oh, handing them your terrifying. diary. And, oh my god! But you got past that the two of you I 25 still, years ago or I something, still didn't you, find so? it frightening the moment anything leaves the, Im- the, the, the email you still do even I if you're sending something absolute fear that it's going to come back saying this is the one we've, we've rumbled you can't do this Yeah, a bit of imposter syndrome and just a bit of yeah. maybe I could do it last week and I can't do it this week yeah. or maybe this is the one project we've ever stretched ourselves on and we can't do it Yeah, we we came out of the recordings of Angstrom which we did for Radio 4 recently which mm. is an audience uh, sitcom which is joke 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 we couldn't calm down because we were so worried oh, that we'd get found out that the 400 jokes in a row we thought were funny only two of them landed no but yeah. also unfortunately you're, you're, sitting, yeah. you're sitting in front of that clock above the mixing board yeah, I know. and so there was a point at which I was, I was going right it's been 6 minutes 35 since a big laugh now We're not. something's gone wrong here something's wrong in this really? scene you know and it's just oh, and how much were you in the edit uh, not, no, at not at we all got, we got sent some early edits and made yeah, a couple of suggestions yeah that's how I do it now as well but I think yeah. I was a absolute pain in the ass to start with on my first radio so I want yeah, to know what I was because I was like I, I want to I want to hear exactly what you're doing with it I quite, you... I quite like listening to the edits as well without a script in front of me so that I yeah. don't see yes. what's been cut yeah 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 because then, if, you don't then miss if I get it, through it and go that's yeah, fine then yeah. I'm not missing yeah. the thing that got cut I know cut. that's another thing that I've learned because I used to sit there obsessively going why have they taken out that and yeah. well why have they what was the reason for that and because I thought that because you know if you write something you don't just chuck it together and you do think yeah. I put that and in for, <laughs> for a reason mm. and there's not you know but you can drive yourself mad. That's, yeah, that's being solo as well. Yes, I suppose. That you so. go, they've hurt my thing. Yeah, why did they take that joke? Um, and you, oh, I like this. The the thing that happens when you're in a collaborative environment, if you're sending stuff backwards and forwards to each other as as a writing duo, is that your partner very often takes jokes out. So you're because, used to it. Yeah. So you go. There were six jokes in this page. They've chosen their four favourites. The two that went were probably either holding up the pace of the thing or were the two weakest of the six. So you get used to the idea that when you send material out, not all of it comes back. But God, that was hard to learn. But don't you ever get any more? Oh, of those two that they've taken out, one of them was my absolute favourite on that page. Yeah, I'll occasionally put it back in and see if anyone notices. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, but not yeah. above that. Yeah, okay. No, got, That's true. Because, you know, your judgment's as good as anybody else's. Fair enough, I am one of life's runners-up. The only prize I've ever won is you. And I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't trapped you in that ice cream van. <laughs> very popular. Everybody calls you by your name. You are married to a loser. A silly, soppy, pathetic loser. You break your pencils. <laughs> I don't care. I've had enough. You are looking at a worm that is turning, Hilda. Lord, you are hurting my arms. I'm almost tempted to say, am I? <laughs> 
Esmond and Larby, who did have the Christian circles, the thing we always say is that when by the time they were up, stepping up to the big time and everyone was looking at them, they had hundreds of hours of experience yeah. under their belt, which meant not only were they good at doing it, but also they could defend their vision against yes. interference. Yeah. And as you're saying, you come out there... Uh, Neil Forsyth, who wrote the Eddie Braben thing, said the same thing. He said by the time he got his first thing on TV, his first half-hour thing on TV, he was still a new writer. Yeah. And it meant that he was made it too complicated. Yeah. And he, by the time it took him a series to work out how to do it, and that people had expectations that he would be able to just do this straight out the traps. Yeah. And you need to learn oh the craft. Oh, my God. It absolutely scares the life out of me <laughs> that 10 years ago, when I'd done a couple of Edinburgh shows, the, and I was thinking, I could do a TV series, somebody might have given me one, because yeah. my God, it would have been appalling i mean i'm not saying that what i've come up with now is going to be do you, you get know, the shivers, extraordinary but it's taken when you watch someone fail or get savaging i watch something come out and be regarded as the worst thing that's ever been on oh, tv I and i watch it and go it's not good but i reckon i could have written that yeah I it could, really that, that could be me i know and i get and you slip you slip over don't you when you're starting to feel like you're close to getting something on telly you go from being that person that we all are of going, oh, that's shit. Why, you know, why has that got on telly? At, to actually going, yeah, but they've slaved over that. Someone's really loved that, and it's been their thing for five years, and now we're all sitting around slagging it off. And when my dad now says, oh, did you see that thing on BBC One? Rather than joining in with him now, I'm not able to go. Yeah, it was shit. I mean, I do a bit, but you, you sort of go, yes, but you know, it could have been great if they'd done that with it. Or yeah. where it comes on, and you think that person has sat around the telly, and they, you know, they thought that they could do it and they've been put on BBC One and who is ever going to be able to be given a BBC One show when they haven't really done anything before? I mean, the only thing I comfort myself with is that I have had 10 years of doing radio stuff. Yeah. It's not mm. the same, by the way, I've discovered in the last few months. <laughs> it's really not the same. Like, for example, in a radio uh, half hour, you can you can sort of be thinking that scene will be fine because we can chop out the lines that aren't going to work. That I know that scene yeah. is probably a minute too long, but we'll choose in the edit the bits of it that work yeah. and the bits of it that don't. And I had naively sort of thought that that would be similar in telly, but of course the ridiculous thing that I hadn't realised is if you've got a scene, well, there's a scene in my pilot where there's two characters who are washing up, you can't take a line out of the middle of that because no. somebody's suddenly got a cup in their hand where a minute ago they had a plate or they're on the other side of the kitchen. So, And I know it seems ridiculously naive that I hadn't even thought and I hadn't thought about that until we were actually sitting there filming yeah. it and I said to Richard the producer oh well I think this is a bit long but we can probably take a couple of those bits out of the middle and he went no you won't be able to because they're you know you know and also that was the other thing that I found interesting is that I realized how many times as an actor I've sort of thought afterwards did I say that line exactly as it was written I think it was roughly the same as it was written <laughs> and then now as a writer you're sitting there at the monitor going well, no, it doesn't say it like that. Why aren't you, why aren't you saying it exactly the way I wrote it, you absolute idiot? Don't you know what you're doing? Yeah. A thing about this, these Esmond and Larby scripts, by the way, I've got a lot of the Ever Decreasing Circles scripts, um, and when I first got them, I went through them and thought, right, I'm going to find out all the stuff that was cut. Yes, and the answer, And the answer is, I think of these sort of 30-odd episodes I've got, I think two lines... Because their Honestly, their scripts are absolutely so top to tail perfect. That's yep. unbelievable, isn't it? It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because they were so good at what they did. Yeah. They knew what they were doing. Learning that skill. Again, something you've just learned and, and you've got here when you look at the, the, the written down That's, evidence. These people have done this a lot. That is so impressive. Yeah. 
thank God they have. I mean, and that's that's what I mean. If, that's you the know. high bar that, that we're always aiming for. And I yeah. think as a new writer or even as a fairly experienced writer in a new field, you're always aiming at that, forgetting the work and the skill yeah. and the learning yeah. and the habits that maybe you haven't had a chance to learn. Yeah. But you're judged alongside them because they're on gold. People can switch channel from your show yes. over to gold oh, don't and that. compare it to porridge at any point. Wow. And I oh, find that terrifying. God. Yeah. Imagine being compared to porridge. Yeah. Oh. Oh, not, not the substance. I don't want being compared to porridge. <laughs> The, the, the well-known, the, the, the comforting breakfast uh, yeah. item. Yeah. yeah. So as a Brucey bonus to this podcast... Without rehearsal. Without rehearsal. As if it was actually but because really we, bad television. Because, because we've got an actual proper actor in the room. Um, Over Decreasing Circles started life as a play called Hiccups, which went on at the Sybil Thorndike Theatre in Leatherhead. Um, and it features many of the same characters. So there's Martin in here, there is his wife, who isn't called Anne, she's called Liz, but she's pretty much the same character. Howard and Hilda are in there, and indeed Hilda on the stage was played by Geraldine Newman. Um, Martin, by the, Martin, by the way, was played by Sam Kelly, which I can see working Oh, very well indeed. Yeah, yeah, I love Sam Kelly. Um, and what's happening is that Martin and his wife and Howard and Hilda are helping their friend Ruthie, who is a young, nervous bookseller, move into her new one-bed flat. Martin has organised all this, of course, because that's his job, and he's got colour-coded items and clipboards and all sorts, and the thing goes disastrously wrong. There is also a character in it called Paul, who is nothing like the Paul in Ever Decreasing Circles. He is a horrible, long-haired, layabout shit. Wow. Who Ruthie shouldn't be with, but he's her current boyfriend. Yeah. This is a tiny, tiny bit of it, because it's because it's a five-hander roughly so it was very difficult to find a bit but I've yanked a bit out of the script because I think it shows a lot of Martin and Howard and what became Anne but is currently Liz so this is a short reading from Hiccups by John Esmond and Bob Larby what's happened here is that they are most of Ruthie's bed has come into the flat mm. but some of it's still in the van because his ordering system has gone wrong and they want to move it into the bedroom Hilda meanwhile would uh, is coming in and offering to make a cup of tea which Martin Martin, of course, thinks is an unproductive waste of time because it's hailing outside and they need to get stuff in from the van. Yeah. So I'm going to be Martin, Joel is going to be Howard, and Catherine is going to be Liz, for which read Anne. Look, Hilda, you know me. I'm not the sort of chap who would just take your teapot for no reason at all. I'm just saying that we all know why we're here, to move Ruthie in. Making another cup of tea because it's hailing isn't going to advance our cause. Squaring away what we've already brought in is... Oh, you mean like putting two-thirds of the bed in the bedroom? Two-thirds of a bed is better than none, Howard. That's true, mind you. If we count the mattress, I suppose we could even be talking about three-quarters. Taking the mattress as a component part of the bed, Howard, I wouldn't disagree. What silly chatterboxes we women are. (laughs) 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 This is all there, all the DNA's there. Uh, Catherine Jakeways, bless you, thank you. Thanks for having me, what fun. (laughs) 